the greatest part of servant leadership is listening, hearing what our folks are telling them, and then go out and get that done so that they can become more effective. Welcome to Real Leadership, the podcast that cuts through the noise to focus on leaders who make, move, and process things in the real economy. Together, we'll discover the strategies and hard-earned lessons from pragmatic, gutsy leaders who operate in a world that is more stake than it is sizzle. Right here, we dive into their stories, challenges, and triumphs to go beneath the surface to the very heart of leadership in the real economy. I'm your host, Jim Weaver, Chief Operating Officer of the Oni Group, where we believe that real leadership does indeed matter. Let's go. Understanding your labor market is crucial for successful recruitment. Onan Staffing's Recruitment Strategy Guide provides insights specific to your geographic location and the positions you're hiring for. Our Recruitment Strategy Guide delivers a clear snapshot of your labor market and actionable intel to tackle market-specific challenges. With Onan's expertise, we help you navigate and win in your competitive landscape. Empower your recruiting process with the insights you need. Learn more about Ona's Recruitment Strategy Guide at onastaffing.com backward slash strategy. Today, I have the pleasure of introducing Mike Bartakowski. As a Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute alum with a bachelor's degree in industrial engineering and an MBA from Villanova, Mike is a seasoned leader in the food industry. Talk about leadership in the real economy. Over the course of Mike's career, he's worked with a bunch of heavy hitters, including Nestle, PepsiCo, and Quaker Oats. His career has had international implications as well from his time in Warsaw, Poland with Coca-Cola as the Director of National Business Development to becoming VP of International Operations at the Hershey's Company. Mike has had a really interesting range of industry and leadership experience. He has shared his expertise in countless expos over the years and runs Summit 5S Consulting, a food processing advisory group. Today, Mike is the Chief Operating Officer of Craftmark Bakery. Craftmark Bakery is a relatively fresh face in the baked goods market, but they are turning heads with their state-of-the-art facility in Indianapolis, Indiana. Mike, welcome. Thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, wow. You know, looking at your, your background, um, that's quite a list of, of big-time organizations. What an interesting career. It seems like you've developed a a niche as a as a fixer is that a an apt way to frame it yeah i i think it is um you know i i think about the litany of folks that i've worked for and consider myself to be virtually unemployable uh <laughs> but uh it it's uh it's been a great uh, range of experience, but I think, yeah, I've, I've focused in on consumer goods and food and beverage um, and the opportunity to go in and really help turn things around. Even for those larger players, a lot of it was um, engaging in, you know, kind of redefining supply chain 
or, you know, as you mentioned uh, in the introduction, some of the international operations and really trying to bring those uh, kicking and screaming into the 21st century. Yeah, I, I was reading about your time with Hershey. It seems like that's where you really kind of planted your flag in the in the the fixer uh, fixer guy category. You came in and you were charged with um, restructuring offshore operations and then restoring Brazil and Mexico to profitability. That sounds like a massive undertaking. What what'd you walk into there? How do you tackle a project like that? And did, were you able to turn it around? Yeah, absolutely. And and it, it was pretty cool. A lot of great leadership uh, with the company at the time. Uh, J.P. Bilbury, who you know went on to be director in, in several different businesses, um, you know, chairman of the board of a couple, huh. and you know, the, those folks really had a vision for what they wanted things to be. And what we found was is you know that Hershey International in those early days was what I used to phrase as the site of benign neglect. Hmm. It, it wasn't that things were really that bad. It just wasn't high on anybody's priority list. Yeah, Hershey was you know really busy growing domestically, really focused on its domestic market. Its international businesses had been small, you know, and to a pretty large degree irrelevant. And yeah. and they said they didn't want that to be the case anymore. So uh, I got a lot of tools, a lot of support to go in and, and make that different. How do you go about triaging? something like that and figuring out what you need to tackle first and what you have to put in place? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. And I, I'm a bit old fashioned. So, you know, I, there's this thing called the ABC analysis. I'm sure we've, we've all heard of it. You know, 20% of whatever we do typically brings 60% or more of its value. The next 20%, you know, brings the next 20% of value. So in 40% of your business, you've got 80% of your value or yeah. more. Yeah. Um, and what we found in, in all of those businesses is that it was true and in fact more concentrated. So we found that 15 or 20% of the business in each place that mattered, we focused on it. Uh, we made sure that we were thinking about it properly from a cost perspective. Um, a couple of interesting examples in, in, in that um, vein. You know, and once we had those things kind of aligned, we could really get people focused on what it would take to grow the business, make it more profitable, and, and really uh, then be able to reinvest to grow in different areas. Yeah, yeah. Is that still the approach today? Yeah, um, you know, I'm I'm a guy with a very small bag of tools, um, so it's pretty much the same thing, rinse and repeat. Um, you know, we go, we go after it in that same way. It's it's figuring out what's core, um, and then going out and, and trying to make it happen. In in a lot of cases in in manufacturing, we find ourselves in these uh, you know older facilities. One of the things that we face is a lot of uh, what I refer to as deferred maintenance. Mm. Um, you know, people have just put off investing in their core assets or put off on maintenance and they suffer the consequences of that, you know, deteriorating efficiencies, uh, things just don't run as well as they would hope they run. And, and they're a bit reluctant to invest, but you figure out when you do invest, when you fix those things, you know, the assets open up and, and there's a lot more opportunity to make the business uh, healthy. What does it take to win those owners over to making those investments typically because that has been in front of them 
many times and they haven't made the the change so what does it take uh you know a little bit of uh of trust me a lot of it is is you know putting them in contact with people that have had success doing it um you know getting to talk to somebody to believe a little bit more uh and then saying okay you know this guy maybe isn't full of himself or stuff yeah and yeah. um you know we'll, we'll give him a shot to to come in and, and help make things happen yeah i think a lot of people know it in their hearts too they mm. understand um you know what's core to the business and what needs to happen to, to make things better um and you're able to go from there i think it's important in senior leadership to have people in your life whether it's a coach or a peer group or somebody like you that comes in and can can come at you at your level and call out your you know we all have lines stories we're telling ourselves that are, are bs <laughs> let's face it right <laughs> yeah yeah you know and it's funny we were talking a little bit before we got started and we talked about the interim executive role and, yeah. and that's really the pivotal role of an interim executive is is to come in and, and be able to speak uh, without reservation uh, with the owner or ownership group and, and call it as you see it, so to speak, um, and then be able to go out and, and be an instrument for change uh, for their benefit and for their team. Uh, so that's, yeah, it, it's really important when you think about you know the qualities of building a team. You look around and, and you think about people who in, in the news maybe are building great teams and those that are, are building questionable teams. And uh, it, it's always easy to have faith in those teams that you feel are a little bit better, a little bit more solid. There are people in the room that are acting like adults. Um, not everybody there is acting like a child. It, it, it makes a difference. Recruiting top talent is tough. Onan Staffing focuses on people, offering exceptional benefits to attract and retain dedicated workers. Partner with us for flexible, data-driven solutions. Visit onanstaffing.com to learn more. We, we were talking about I, I, we, we were talking about Coach Prime uh, coming up to this, and it, interesting to see that this is a little bit of a right turn, but you and I were talking about it. <laughs> yeah. Interesting to see the the changes in Colorado and that football program and, and the good things are happening and some of the great things, but uh, he made a cultural comment we were talking about that you, you seem to take a little issue with. Why don't, you, why don't you go down that rabbit trail a little bit? Sure, you know, and, and, and I, I was intrigued by it because he, he said he didn't really give uh, much thought to culture. Yeah. Um, and I found it to be ironic. I, you know, I really objected to it because I believe culture is, is paramount to, to building successful ventures at every level. Um, you know, and I think it's particularly important when you're talking about uh, a bunch of young men and, and trying to form how they, how they think about the world and, and things going on. And with all the conflicting uh, influences, I guess, that exist in, in big time college sports now. These guys have so much temptation in front of them. Um, that if it isn't really cultural based then you know or based in culture it's going to be difficult to to do well and you know so he says he doesn't care about culture but everything he does smacks a culture um, it's always a little bit tough to take coach prime you know for uh, 
some of the the brash and outspoken things that he comes out with. But when you when you slow down and listen to where he's at, you know he's a he's a faith based guy. Yeah, he really is about culture. Everything he does is about about culture and and about um, his love for his players, for his team, uh, you know, for those around him. And, and I think that that's that's a really powerful thing. Um, really interesting to watch. I, I think that statement. I think I understood what he was saying. I think the statement taken out of context can be a little. Uh, it could be a little dangerous, you know. Um, you don't want to win at all costs. Culture. I think sometimes a focus on culture. People can think that that means we're making everybody comfortable. And it seems to me that's kind of what he was railing against. Like, no, we're we're here. We got a mission. Um, that's what we're focused on. I know we, it was a few years back, we we really wanted to focus on culture and somehow we sent the message that it was about uh, comfort. And we had to make a really conscious decision. Like, no, we're, we're this is a winning culture. Like, um, this isn't this isn't about everybody being comfortable. I think that's people kind of think about culture and they're like ping pong uh, in the break room and you know happy hours at the end of the day. I, maybe that's where he was coming from. I, I couldn't make sense of that. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, I think you know that, that there's a there's a bit of a uh, a dichotomy. Uh, you know, when people talk about culture and it, it, if it's too nurturing, if it's too um, if it's less focused on what it takes to win um, in, in business or in life. But I mean, I think that, you know, I, I talk a lot about servant leadership. He acts uh, a lot from a, from a position of servant leadership. And, and those words just weren't consistent. And it was really, it was really hard for me to deal with because <laughs> there was so much press being given to yeah. it. Um, you know, I played a little bit of college football and, you know, we weren't that successful as a team. You know, in my early days, we got a little bit more successful. The team's, you know, doing doing better these days. But, um, you know, it really is, to me, so important that, that the, the players feel supported, that they also have a sense of obligation to somebody for what's right and what's wrong. And with all the, you know, pay for, you know, personal rights and, and the kind yeah. of things that are in front of college athletes today, that measure of accountability has gone wanting. Mm. And I, you know, I really like the fact that he, he underneath these statements is trying to hold people accountable. I hope it goes beyond, um, you know, what we, we see. And I hope that, uh, the guys at, uh, Colorado stay above the fray and don't fall victim is a lot of college athletes have to you know the excesses that can can be part of their success yeah that's it's tough to handle that at that age <laughs> you need some guide rails yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know think of myself at, the, at that oh. age and kind of go you know yeah put a couple million dollars in front of me i would have been a mess yeah yeah no um, kidding i probably still would be today but that's a different <laughs> story <laughs> So. so when you go into a um, new operation or you're, you're coming in as a, um, in an interim executive role, what are you looking for? What are your goals in terms of culture and how do you uh, go about bringing that to fruition? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, in manufacturing, we have a, a bit of a history of, of being organizations that are inclined towards command and control. 
uh, and you look generationally that a lot of leaders in manufacturing uh, talk about um, you know what to do and giving clear direction uh, to people and I think it's finding the balance of providing direction in terms of the bigger goals the two or three things that are key for the organization to achieve and then to giving people the boundaries and letting them go mm-hmm. um, asking them to participate you know participative uh, collaboration from the shop floor isn't something that people you know in a lot of places have done well we hear a lot about lean manufacturing and you know at its core toyota you know in developing that you know they stole it from you know deming and the guys here in the in the states and and made it much better and and really lived by it um but that was all about taking the voice of the folks on the floor and what they were doing and using that to make things better. And, and you know, you really can't beat that in terms of finding solutions and getting better quickly. So that's what we look for is, is you go in as a team, want to build a team of folks. You know, we, we, we came into Craftmark and had a situation where, you know, with the pandemic, we had 70% temps and we had 200 and plus percent turnover. And, wow. and, and really the challenge was to get in there and find leaders that um, could both be shoulder to shoulder with their you know, teammates on the line um, and then could separate themselves, become supervisors, become managers and, and grow with the business. So that was our focus. And, and we realized like a lot of manufacturing companies do that you know, a lot of their first line supervision is promoted from within. Yeah. Um, one of the underdeveloped areas that, that people end up suffering with is that ability to lead people on the frontline basis. And so we worked hard on that, um, found folks, you know, who, who had that inclination, yeah. helped them develop that, and then tried to redefine their roles for them in, into um, things that allowed them to be supervisors, allowed them to be managers because some of the expectation in crisis is is that they rolled up their sleeves and they jumped in there. Yeah. Um, and then we didn't have anybody managing. Yes. Right? Everybody was working their tails off and nobody knew, you know, what the, what was good at the end of the day or mm-hmm. what needed to be done. So so we helped them get their heads up and 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 move on and and focus on winning. Yeah. I I've read in uh, you know, interviews and you you touched on it earlier, but you are um you talk a lot about servant leadership. So what does that mean to you? And why is that something you're passionate about? Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think it's such a great concept for, for leadership. And we can all relate to people in our lives who have been that transformational leader, teacher, coach, mentor for us. And, and they never came across as the person who was telling you exactly what to do um, who was, um, they may have been giving you warnings, they may have been helping you try to see the error in your ways, but they were really much more about helping you understand the choices that you could make, um, helping you solve the problems that were in front of you, and that's what I see as ser- servant leadership. Um, you know, our folks on the floor, they know what they need to do every day, yeah. um, but what they, what they don't have is access to go and solve the problems. They can't write a purchase order to buy new stuff. They need somebody to do that for them. Um, you know, whether it's 
you know, a new piece of equipment or it's repairs to a piece of equipment. They, they oftentimes feel constrained that nobody listens to them. Uh, so therefore, nothing gets fixed. And we try to really make a, an effort that the greatest part of servant leadership is listening, hearing what our folks are telling them, and then go out and get that done so that they can become more effective. The greatest part of servant leadership is listening. I think that's strong. It seems like that's scarce, especially um, in the industries that we work with and, and that you've been in. Um, why do you think that is? You know, I, I, th I think a lot of it uh, comes from the perception of what leaders are supposed to do. We're supposed to know what the problems are. Um, so sometimes it's, it's difficult to take input. Um, and you feel maybe as a leader that you're not really on top of your game if you're reliant on the people on the floor to tell you what you need to do. Um, so it's finding that balance. I mean, because as leaders, we need to know the top two or three things. Mm -hmm. We need to know what's really important to success for the business, success for the enterprise, success for the product, um, and, and get people focused on that. Uh, and underneath that, there's, you know, myriads of other problems that, that we're not always the closest to to solve. And figuring out how to listen and how to listen by level um, is, a, is a really important, um, I think, revelation, you know, or, or maturation for leaders. Yeah. Listen by level. Explain that. Um, you know, so your floor folks are going to have certain things that they're going to tell you about that are that are frustrating for them. Mm -hmm. you know, that's their day to day interaction with the product, with the equipment, uh, with the management. Um, yeah. and, and, and then, you know, so those are a set of problems to solve. And then your your frontline leadership, you know, they're going to tell you their frustrations with the people. Um, their frustration with the systems that they're asked to work with, mm -hmm. you know, what they see on a larger scale of equipment, you know, beyond the hour by hour um, to, to what happens on a weekly basis, what startups and shutdowns are like um, and, and get that. And then you've got, you know, your department managers who you're tasking to to go out and, and you know, find savings, uh, find ways to become more efficient. You know, they're looking at a different set of problems. So you've, you've got to be able to tune in as a leader at each of those levels yeah. um, and, and sort the wheat from the chaff and find those things that you can, you can do reasonably, you can do quickly. Um, and the momentum that you gain, you know, I, I'll, I'll never forget early on in, a, you know, in one of our turnarounds, you know, one of the feedback pieces that we got was, is, hey, you know, that emergency exit sign has been broken for about six months. And we bring it up in every safety committee meeting and, and it never gets fixed. And it just it's just a clear symbol that nobody's listening to what mm. we have to say. Yeah. And, you know, didn't take me long. I said, OK, I'm going to go grab somebody, grabbed an electrician and said, you know, you know, what would it take to fix that emergency exit light in that room? So oh, I can get that done in about five minutes. I said, please <laughs> go do that for me. <laughs> you know, and they went and did it. And, and, and that was the beginning of the change. Yeah. Right. It was as simple as that, but that's that drove a, a great deal of change, a great deal of differential focus from people to say, hey, we're going to fix things that we know are wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we talk about safety being first, but then we can't fix an emergency exit sign. Yeah. It just doesn't seem quite right. Yeah. It's easy to kind of get sucked into the big picture strategic you know, whatever, <laughs> yeah. when, man, you can get some really easy wins. 
that send a really good message. Uh, it's foolish to overlook those. You know, that's yeah. a great example of that. Oh, and, and, and the momentum that you build is people start to believe, you know, it's those little things that first give them confidence that, okay, you are going to listen and you're going to try to make things better. Um, you know, we're going to succeed in, in many of those things, but we're, we're still going to fail against some of the things that they ask us to do because, you know, yes, we listened, but we didn't listen well. Yeah. Um, and, and we got it wrong when we tried to fix it. So uh, going out there and, and, and really trying to fix things um, is, is pretty key. Accomplishing diversity, equality, and inclusion directives can be challenging. Excelsior Staffing, a certified MBE providing staffing solutions for light industrial sectors, has been helping companies like yours find success since 2007. Strengthen your diverse team with Excelsior. ExcelsiorStaffing.com You're currently the COO with Craftmark Bakery. That's your, uh, and they're a fairly... um, not as not as marquee as some of the names, but you've got a got a nice presence. It's a it's an impressive operation. So for the folks listening, what do you bake, and who do you bake it for? Sure, sure. So um, we actually don't bake a ton. Um, we're less of a bakery and, and more of a, a refrigeration company. I guess. Uh, <laughs> That's the when name. It comes, when it comes down <laughs> to it, um, we've got two ovens in the building. Um, so we do bake a, a finished cookie and we bake uh, some flatbreads. Uh-huh. Um, and most of what we do, though, is we're making, f- you know, preformed frozen products. Um, we make what we term a breadstick, which gets baked into uh, a sandwich loaf for uh, okay. uh, a green and yellow company that's advertising a lot recently. Okay. Um, and uh, we, we also bake their cookies. We bake, uh, you know, for most quick service restaurants out there were in within some form or another from breakfast right through dinner. Um, you know, so people have eaten your product. Use. Most people have eaten your product. Yeah, pretty certain. Years. Pretty certain. Uh, yeah. You know, we've got good national distribution. We're with a lot of major retailers. Yeah. You know, our retail presence, you know, right now we're on the verge of launching with the national retailer. Um, our other retail business has been We've had a national retailer in the in the uh, better for you grocery space now for a little bit uh, coming yeah. up in a couple of years. So yeah, we're we're proud of of what we make. We we make it under their label for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not going to see Craftmark out there on, on the retail shelf. But um, you know we're we're doing a couple hundred million dollars of business supporting you know your local quick service restaurant. Yeah, why do your customers work with you as opposed to your competitors? Well, it's a tough space. Um, you know, it really is. It's it's highly competitive. It's very very price motivated. Um, you know, we we entered into a deal to bring um, new capacity and and new technology into a space that had been aging and 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 pretty antiquated. Uh, that brought with it some economies uh, of scale. Mm-hmm. Um, our lines are are big and fast. And, and that's an area of opportunity for folks that are doing high volume to, to take advantage of and, and to you know, enter in with somebody who's invested in that technology and really uh, you know, partnering with them to grow it. So they're coming to us for that. Um, we also have a lights out innovation team that um, you know, a lot of these folks 
have uh, developed or worked with a partner to develop um, a range of products that they no longer have ownership of. Uh-huh. Um, they don't own the formula. Um, they don't, you know, have all of the rights of development that they'd like to have. And and we partner with them to give back, you know, a, f- a fair share of those rights and uh-huh. help them have insight to their formula and and then evolve that formula. You know, we've all heard about, uh, you know, the no, no, no list. Um, mm-hmm. You want to have a product that doesn't have any sugar in it, doesn't have any fat in it, doesn't, you know, um, doesn't yeah. have any artificial ingredients. Those things are hard to come by, right. you know, particularly if you're talking cookies and bread. Yes. So uh, <laughs> um, we, we try to help them find a path forward in that, in huh. that regard. Okay. Um, is the efficiency that you've, uh, you guys have been able to develop in terms of of your lines is that how you were able to bring down the the labor spend while production went up i would assume that had something to do with it yeah that that, that's that's a big deal i mean we had to get on top of of running the lines the way that they were intended to be run um a a little bit of that was deferred maintenance and, and getting equipment back at rate yeah um and then it was you know working to you know, in in the midst of of the pandemic and the supply chain things that happened, you know, we found ourselves in in that um, declining spiral uh, of service. You know, you weren't able to service. You had to cancel or shorten a run because materials weren't coming. You know, we were throwing labor at it, trying yeah. to to build our capability, and it just kind of spiraled downwards into not not having the product that people wanted at the time they wanted it, et cetera, and and. Timing such as it is, you know, now we've had 18 months of success of being able to have a more reliable supply chain, and and we didn't do that. I mean, yeah, we we're we're, we're thankful for the circumstances changing, um, but what we did do was we made our equipment more reliable, um, and then we were able to run better um, and start to take advantage of that and really turn the business around from what was literally a revolving door um, into into something that's more sustainable. And, and that gives people a reason to come back. You know, so now we're finding people, you know, building their tenure with us. We were a bit bipolar in that regard. We had some people that have been with us the full seven or eight years that we've existed as a company. Yeah. And, and we struggled to have people come back the second day. Mm. Um, so yeah, uh, yeah. We're, now a, we're now in a point where our average tenure is really starting to increase and, and we're taking advantage of that. So why do people stick around with you if they're gonna stick around? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. I mean, I think the, you know, the one thing that, that people really have to do is, number one, they love what they do. Um, they, we work in manufacturing and I think it's hard for a lot of people to relate to that. Um, because they, they view it as, as being very repetitive. But I think it, at a level for a lot of people, myself included, it's very rewarding in that you're able to see what you made each day. Um, you know, I talk about walking in and seeing an empty warehouse in the morning and by evening leaving knowing that we're going to have that warehouse full of, of great products. Yeah. You know, and then second is, is you know, their, their path as individuals. I mean, people are looking for fulfillment and this doesn't matter whether you're uh, a janitor be the just best janitor you can be or or you're working on a on a production line you know with us at Craftmark it, you know they're fulfilled on a level beyond just being paid for their work whether that's um, helping to train new employees or learning a skill or feeling like they were part of a solution because 
we asked them what they thought, they told us, and we did. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, we took their advice. So that that fulfillment is is really really key. And you know, the the, the next piece is is you know, people still value stability. Um, you know, I think the days are gone when we're going to have single employer careers. Yeah. Um, you know, but we we find every day a core of people who are committed to growing with us as we grow with them, and and that's really. Uh, you know, increasing value to our team members and increasing value to us. Yeah. You, on the previous uh, point, you mentioned supply chain issues. I'm curious how a guy like you thinks about the supply chain. You know, we, we sort of realized that, wow, it's really cost effective, but boy, is it fragile the <laughs> way we do things. Yeah. So how how are you thinking about that long term? How do you think that we need to mix things or change things up with our supply chain um, here in the U.S. to to not get so easily derailed? How, how are you thinking about that? Yeah, you know, I, I think that we're we're relearning lessons of the past, and and uh, you know, history is a great teacher, and you know, we we ought to learn from it, or we're doomed to to repeat it. Um, the the lesson here was is you know remain close to your core um so if your core market is here in the u.s you're you're sourcing and a majority of your value ought to be created pretty close to where hmm. where that is uh for us in the food business that's always been been pretty easy for most yeah. people um, yeah. who export branded food products those exports are are pretty small and kind of the entry into um those markets, and then you end up building factories there. That's a lot of what we did with Hershey when we were opening up international markets. Is we we opened the door with imports, you know, mm -hmm. we built the market, and then we we went in and, and yeah. made it locally. Yeah, um, you know. So I your what, supply chain was local in with international with like with Hershey that you you develop a local supply chain there as well. Yeah, and there were certain boundaries we put up for product safety, et cetera. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we were entering China in, in, in a period of time when they were having, you know, some dairy um, issues, some crises with uh, melamine in their dairy products. And, you know, we, we had a hard and fast rule that we weren't going to buy um, local dairy uh, until we had, you know, we had a, a good idea that it was going to be safe. Yeah. And thank God for that. Um, didn't make us particularly popular with the Chinese government, but... Uh, in the long term, it, it was the right thing to do. And I think we're seeing that lesson a little bit today, you know, of, you know, people talk about reshoring is kind of the, the, the new buzzword that's out there. Um, I think it's a bit overdue. Um, you know, I, I also see, you know, this, this whole idea of, you know, our carbon footprint is being a big driver for what's gonna cause some companies to, to really wake up and say, you know, I can't be sourcing inexpensive widgets from far, you know, far away lands and expect that to be the right way to, to drive, um, you know, my growth for, for the long term. Yeah. So I've got to find a balance. Um, you know, there are going to be economic centers for certain raw materials for sure. Yeah. Um, and, and that's always going to be the case. I, I don't think anybody in the world will ever produce oil as cheaply as they produce oil in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, we're gonna to have to find alternative sources and figure out how to balance that supply chain. Sure. Um, so. Yeah. How else do you see um, your industry, the, the food production industry evolving over coming years? 
Yeah, you know, we're we're in a very um, kind of tenuous spot, not unlike a, a lot of other industry has, has found themselves. Um, a lot of our industry has aged. A lot of the companies that are hallmarks of our industry have been around for a long time. They're, the margins have gotten increasingly small and competitive, and that's been a, a barrier to reinvestment. Yeah. And I think what we're starting to see now is is that there's new technology out there that that changes the value proposition for investment. So we're going to see. Uh, I think we'll see some consolidation in the industry. We'll see, um, you know, good suppliers be rewarded for quality, be rewarded for good relationships, and and that'll be part of the consolidation model. But the other part will be, you know, those folks willing to invest. Uh, to renew technology and to find, you know, a different path forward, whether it's lower cost or higher efficiency. Um, those are things that we need to do. Yeah. You've been around for a while. Um, what's something you've changed your mind on recently? Well, the, the, you know, interesting, interesting point. And, you know, in Indiana, they, they say, yeah, it's been a minute. Um, they always say, yeah, it's, it's been a minute that I've been in, in the business. <laughs> well, in, in that minute, one of the things that really changed for me is labor. We've talked a lot about it in this, uh, in this segment. You guys are, are a key player in that, in that labor market. Um, and to, to really talk about how that's changed. As, a, as a, a younger manager, I always believed there would be enough labor out there to, to solve any problem, address any issue, uh, that we'd always be you know competitive from a labor perspective. People would want to come to work yeah. for a good wage. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure that, that that's the case anymore. You know, there's, you know, people are making different value judgments about what work they want to do. Um, and, and we've got to figure that out. And it really is a war for talent. It, it's, um, you know, particularly in some of the technical areas, like, you know, I can't tell you, um, you know, Indianapolis is a market. We've got um, more jobs in the area than there are people to fill the jobs. Yeah. So we see, we see a, a high mobility amongst workers and, and we see certain categories of workers being, you know, extremely competitive tech, you know, maintenance technicians, technical people, uh, instrument folks, electricians, skilled trades, um, yeah. they really can kind of write their own ticket these days. Yeah. Um, the low labor force participation rate is a real challenge. And then that skilled labor gap is another huge challenge. You know, I, I, a few years ago, it's like the average skilled trades worker was 56 years old. I think that was about 10 years ago yeah. when I read so, that. So, so they're retired. Do no, the math, no. you know. Oh, my goodness. Uh, there, but there's, there is a lot of opportunity. You're absolutely right. Folks can write their own ticket. We're trying to uh, trying to promote that in high schools here in Alabama. Um, and, and we've got to figure out how to get people off the sidelines or have sensible, you know, immigration policy, you know, because uh, there is a real shortage in every state not just indiana but there's a there's a gap there yeah you know in 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 automation you know what what we're finding is is that we've we've done some automation and and we've done some you know what i will call gamification of work mm -hmm. you know we've translated a lot of our shop floor management to being you know graphical tools on on a tablet uh, uh -huh. so people can see what they're doing they know what it takes to win not just for the day anymore, but hour by hour. And that's really driving 
a different type of engagement and it's making it more relevant for people, uh, you know, new young folks whose whose idea of, uh, you know, immediate return is really vastly different uh, than it was 20, 25 years ago. Yeah. So finding a way to turn on that switch for them has really been key. And hopefully, you know, we, we ignite enough interest that they'll go out and figure out that they want to be a bigger part of that. We're seeing that it's still a pretty small, you know, core of folks, you know, maybe five or 10% that really get excited about it and come to us and say, I'd like to be a bigger part of this. You know, is there something you can do for me? And we're more than happy to, to try and find ways to build them as managers and, yeah. and to, to get them going. Yeah. Well, we are almost up on time. I want to. Well, I'll hit you with one more question before we let you let you get back to it. Sure. Um, so, what advice would you give yourself, your thirty-year-old self? It's been a minute. Yeah, yeah <laughs> so. it, 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 it's been a minute since I was thirty. You know. Yeah. And, what, uh, what lessons have you learned? Thankfully, my kids are going through this, and this is advice I give them: is is remember to to find and keep balance in your life, and. Uh, I wish I'd been better at it. I wish I was better at it today. Mm. Um, you know, I still uh, probably skew too much towards work and and things outside of the the other things that should be important uh, in your life. So find that and uh, you know, family, service, uh, and and home are are things that that come uh, you know real big in that. You know, I put service. You know whether it's uh, faith-based or it's some other service to your community that that's uh, rewarding and invaluable beyond words. Yeah. Um, and and people need to. I th- I think in your old age you you find out how much value you draw from that. And I see when there are young people engaged how much energy they have to bring. And I think if if people could find that sooner, that would be really really great. Um, you know, the other one um, is is being more conscious of physical fitness. You know, I am really marvel at the level of fitness that that our country, um, that our communities are are embracing, and I think that's that's really good and important uh, because it never gets easier as you get older right. um, yeah. to, to be fit or to try and regain fitness. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then you know, the the last piece is is. Uh, really about trying to find something beautiful every day. Um, you know, whether that's a sunset, a uh, smile from your child, I've got a you know, little 20 pound ball of fluff around here and <laughs> she's going blind and deaf, but Aww. you know, when she wags her tail, that's, uh, you know, that's pretty cool. And, yeah. and, and just the, the simplicity of life through those eyes is, is pretty cool. Yeah, the clock is ticking. You gotta, yeah. gotta take those moments for sure. Absolutely. Well, that's good. Let's end it there. So uh, where can folks find out more about Craftmark for those who are up in Indianapolis or, you know, um, maybe can can reach you or your consulting group? Where, where can they find you? you know, well, uh, please find us on, on craftmark.com. Uh, you know, we're looking for uh, people to, to come to work with us, to join us. And if you're in the Indy area and you're looking for, you know, an exciting way to engage um, your talents, then then please check us out. Um, if you've got a, uh, a restaurant or a supermarket and you're looking for uh, ways to bring new products into your uh, your bakery section or into the products that you're selling, then then give us a call. We're Again, we're online at uh, craftmark.com. 
And, uh, you know, you can find me at uh, summit5askconsulting.com. Um, kind of park that business while I'm doing other gigs, but, uh, you know, really anxious to talk to people all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. We'll put that in the show notes. Mike, thank you so, uh, thank you so much. It's Thanks, been great. Jim. It, this, is, this, was, this was really fun. I appreciate it. Yeah. Okay, folks. Until next time, keep it real. Thank you for listening. This podcast was powered by Owning, a family of staffing companies providing real staffing solutions to manufacturing, logistics, and food processing companies across the United States of America. To get in touch or learn more about partnering with an Owning Group company, visit us at www.owninggroup.com. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time.